as you can see by Charlie's hair color, it's Halloween is drawing near. <laughs> On Halloween 2012, I spent the night in a haunted house. A real one. I was on my carbon Sabbath, the year I spent without flying or driving, during which time I bicycled around the country, engaging Christian communities in dialogue about climate change. I had just cycled through the heart of West Virginia. I'd seen firsthand the devastation brought on by mountaintop removal. You guys know about mountaintop removal? It's a process through which coal companies extract coal by exploding and removing entire mountains to expose the coal beds. Aside from destroying geological history and habitat to uncover dirty fossil fuel, the process pollutes nearby water with arsenic, selenium, cadmium, and mercury. The air has dangerous levels of silica and ammonium nitrate. The health effects on people and animals nearby are atrocious. After I met with local religious leaders who were working to stop mountaintop removal and who were doing a lot of good work in that field, a host treated me to a night in the historic General Lewis Inn in Lewisburg, West Virginia, which many claim is haunted by the ghosts of a murdered slave named Reuben, as well as a little girl and a young woman. I saw no such thing in my night at this hotel, uh, but it was a really spooky place to spend the evening, especially Halloween. Two days later, I crossed the mountains uh, in the snow. Uh, it, there'd been an early snowstorm. I crossed the mountains into Virginia, and I spent the night in a town called Churchville with a young family named the Rovats. The Rovats had three children spread across grammar school and junior high. All the kids took lessons on multiple instruments and played various sports. Suffice it to say, they had their hands full. As you can imagine, the financial burden of raising three kids in rural Virginia was significant. With few options for employment, the father, Will, took a job at the local coal-powered electrical plant. Will understood the environmental implications of that decision. He felt horrible for playing a part in the pollution of the region and in the destruction of the planet. But he had a family to feed. So he did the work he did not want to do. While the work that I was doing was in conflict with the work that he was doing, I had deep respect for Will. 
I'd stayed with people all over the country who were working on climate crisis. People with electric cars and gardens and fancy bikes. But of all the people I met, it was Will that had something that others did not. Lament. Real, palpable lament. His contrition was genuine. You know, Thoreau famously said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Will Rovat's desperation was loud. It was loud. That is what we experience in the gospel today. Loud desperation, true contrition, lament and striving for God. In Luke's parable, there are two characters. There's the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee, we hear a lot about those folks. We tend to paint them in a bad light, but really, they're just sincere religious folks trying to get it right. Sincere religious folks trying to get it right. For Pharisee, we could easily sub out Episcopalians if we want to keep ourselves honest and humble as prescribed in this parable, right? So let's sub out Episcopalian. Then there is the tax collector. This is a dirty job. It meant working for the man. Rome. Israel-Palestine was under Roman occupation. Romans collected taxes from their subjects. They'd hire locals to go make sure everyone paid. This was a muscle job. When you hear tax collector, think less like IRS agent and more Sopranos. Of course, some people took advantage of the position and took a little extra for themselves. They had the muscle, why not? It seems that this was commonplace. In fact, uh, that's why we get John the Baptist telling uh, tax collectors in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel not to take any more money than they were supposed to, right? That's a pretty simple command from a guy who's, who's saying, repent and change. Just don't take more than you're supposed to. Even if he did not skim off the top, you can understand why the tax collector in this story beats his chest and asks for mercy. He is part of a system of oppression. Like Will Rovat, he hates being part of this destructive power at work. It's tempting to think that we are in the clear because we don't work in the coal industry. We're not tax collectors. We're pretty good, right? We watch all the right documentaries. We drive Priuses. We compost. We've got our Black Lives Matter posters and our LGBTQ flags. Just underneath the surface, you can hear our contempt for others, right? Thank God I am not like that Trump supporter. <laughs> Thank God I don't watch Fox News. Thanks God I am more woke than those frat guys. 
thank God I'm not some homeless junkie. Thank God I'm not like that mentally retarded child or that autistic adult. Thank God I am not like them. The truth is we are all like them. We are like all of those people. We are all children of God, loved by the eternal source of light and life. We are all children of the Lord, as we're going to sing in a little bit. As I read this passage about the importance of humility, I couldn't help but think about my own kids. Whenever I think I am too cool for school, I hear a voice that is calling for its bottom to be wiped. (laughs) I hear a voice telling me that I smell funny or that the food I just made them is yucky. Or, like this morning, at 3.45 a.m., I hear multiple voices and go upstairs to find the boys playing in their room with the lights on. 3.45 a.m. Of course, with Mary Beth at our town. In hindsight, it was kind of cute. Like, they were, like, in there, you know, like, playing together, and it was really sweet. But, like, at the time, I was not amused, not excited. While they drive me crazy sometimes, those little guys bring me back to connection. They bring me back to love. Sometimes it's when I get home from work and they run out to see my car or in the morning when they're thrilled to see me, even if the last time I saw them, I yelled at them to go to sleep. They are my teachers. Love teachers. We all have those teachers and many of you are those teachers. We all also have plenty of opportunities to be humble. Students and teachers encounter humility inherently as you approach either side of not knowing. Learning requires humility. Others of us, aging or not, are humbled by our bodies, Bodies doing things we wish they wouldn't do and not doing the things we wish they would do. (laughs) But humility is not about feeling a way we don't want to feel. It's not about guilt or shame or feeling small. Humility is about trust. Did you notice the preface for today's parable? Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. We've talked about this before, how the Greek word we translate faith, pistis, also means trust. Humility is a question of misplaced trust. If we trust in our own power or authority or accomplishment, if we trust in money or beauty or even our own gumption, we will be disappointed again and again. That 
That's the power of this portion from Jeremiah today. I know it's long, but listen to that one line. We set our hope on you. We set our hope on you. Trust is like water. When we trust in just ourselves, we set our ship to sail on a drop of water. That ship is not going far. If we let go of our pride, our self-righteousness, our isolation, we find ourselves lifted by that eternal current that made and makes all things. The creator of Will Rovat, the creator of Bishop Sammy. Thanks for being here, Sammy. Uh, Bishop um, the creator of my children, of your children, of all children, the creative creator whose currency is love. It is a currency, a current comprised of all that is and was and will be, a current that knows no end. It is in that current that we find our value, our true identity as beloved children of love itself. Amen.